Good morning, everyone. For me, it's a very real privilege to be sharing things with you this morning that's on my heart, things that I've been thinking about and praying about over the last little while. Uh, I don't know if you all look like me, but I'm a very keen sportsman, as most of you here will know. And so just recently, uh, we've been watching the Olympic Games, which finished just a few weeks ago. I've seen the interviews. I've looked at all of the events that took place and enjoyed them very much for the most part. One of the things that did interest me was the interviews that I've seen between the competitors who have been interviewed on television at great length. And the thing that came across to me when seeing them interviewed was the relationship that some of them have upon their coaches. Those people who are instrumental in the achievements that these athletes go through. And the coach and an athlete seem to me to have a great dependence and a reliance upon each other. And it's the same with God as well. We rely on him in all that, in all that we are intending to do. Now, what always interests me when I look in the scriptures and when I read of the ministry of the disciples and the apostles is the relationship that they have with God. They're men of prayer. I was reading only the other day in Acts 16 about the way in which Paul and Silas uh, were, going to, were called to minister in Philippi and the way in which they, they immediately looked and sought a place for prayer. They were concerned about being in touch with God. They were concerned about doing his will. They were concerned to carry out whatever it was that he wanted them to do. And immediately they sought the place of prayer. Well, they met up with a lady called Lydia, who was a, a dealer in purple dye. She was a businesswoman. And they prayed with her. And she was a worshipper of God. And about a fortnight ago, Chris Cleary was talking about the relationship between us and God. It's the, he was pointing out the great difference between actually knowing about God and knowing God. And Lydia was a worshipper of God, but didn't actually know him until Paul ministered and preached the gospel to the women that was there. And, they, and she received and opened her heart to God. Before we moved into, into Norwich, we lived in a little village in Northampton. I had taken an appointment there to be head of the supplies department at a local hospital. It was a psychiatric hospital in Northamptonshire, St Crispin's Hospital. And uh, this was my job to be totally responsible for the purchasing and the procurement of goods and supplies for the hospital group. Now, within that hospital, they had student nurses. And uh, the system was that we were supposed to have a student nurse aligned to us to come and work alongside us and to be trained with us. It was part of the training of student nurses. And there was a young man called Martin who was aligned to our department. Martin was a local boy. He'd grown up in the village. He was very well known. And if there was any trouble in the village, then you could bet your bottom dollar that Martin would be at the root of it. He was a troublemaker. He was a known tearaway, and he had to everybody's amazement, decided to train to become a psychiatric nurse. When my deputy, I didn't know Martin at all at this time, I was very new in post, but my deputy actually knew him and had known him since childhood. And uh, when she realized that Martin was coming in to work in our department, she was absolutely horrified. She said, we're not having that little so-and-so. She didn't actually use those words. I won't repeat what she said, 
but she was most uncomplimentary about Martin. We're not having him in here. No way is he coming anywhere near to this department. I said, well, I don't quite agree. I said, we'll give him a chance. We'll have him come in and he can come in and work with us. Everybody deserves a second chance. She said, she's had more chances than I can imagine, she said to me. We're not having him in here. I said, I am, I'm going to give her a chance. And I had to be strong enough to overrule all of her situation and to say, we're going to have Martin in here and we'll give him another chance. I said, I'll talk to him. And if he causes us any trouble within this department, then I will deal with it and we'll meet it head on, should that be the case. So Martin came in. I had a chat with him, told him what we expected of him, and said, if, you're, if, you're, if you behave yourself, then we'll do, we'll do well together, we'll work together, and we'll work through any problems that you have. Do you know, I didn't have a spot of bother with Martin for the whole of the 12 months that he worked in my department. He did his work well. He was really good. But the important thing was that in those days, we didn't have a car, I wasn't even driving at all in those days. And um, we found ourselves going to a small little church in a place called Dustin, just outside of Northampton. The morning congregation consisted of about five people. In the evening, if you were lucky, you'd maybe have a dozen to the evening service. The very first time we went there into the morning service, Jill and I and the boys who were very small in those days, who should be at the door waiting to greet us but Martin, he had actually started going to church. I couldn't believe it. This was the guy, the so-called tearaway. This was the cause of all of the trouble in the village. And there he was greeting us and welcoming us as a family into this little chapel. And he became a lovely Christian because in his life, he told me, there had been a day in his life when he'd accepted Jesus to be his saviour and Lord. And this was a marvellous thing that we should get to know. We became very good friends. Uh, Martin used to visit us in our home quite a lot. He was brilliant with my boys, Stephen and David. He used to take them out. He used to look after them and help us with them and all of these things. It was marvellous to get to know Martin and to realise that apart from causing trouble, he'd now become a trophy of grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Also among the five people in our morning congregation were an elderly couple as well, and they confided in me that for years they'd actually been praying for Martin. And he'd come through. Later on, he grew up into a lovely Christian man. He married a lovely girl who was several years older than he was, and together they had a really good ministry in Northampton. Later, he became an elder of a Baptist church. And you can put that down to the prayers of the people who knew Martin. And the disciples and the apostles were people of prayer. And in the story that Helen read out to us this morning, we read about Peter and John going up into the temple. The date is not given. We don't know about that. We don't know what the date was, but we do know that it was at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. That was the time of prayer, three o'clock. I don't know what your time of prayer is. Mine's usually about half past five in the morning because I'm one of these people who gets up early. I don't sleep much after about half four, five o'clock. I'm a bit like that. But I've got a set time when I like to meet with God and he expects us to be there 
up a particular time. Okay, we don't always make it, things go wrong, we get, we get distracted and all of that sort of stuff. But the time of prayer was at three o'clock in the afternoon. That was the time and it took place after the evening sacrifice, which was observed by all of the religious Jews. And Peter and John were men of prayer. They were people like the athlete and coach, but they were very constantly in touch with God. They needed to know his will. They needed to know his guidance. They needed to know his leading. They needed to know how to handle the people whom he puts them in touch with. In this case, it was the crippled beggar. And so at the time of prayer, of three, at the time of prayer three o'clock in the afternoon, they're going to the place of prayer after the evening sacrifice. And the apostles Peter and John's arrival at the temple coincided, or you could say God incited, coincided, if you like, with the arrival of a man who'd been crippled from birth and who was being carried there by friends or relatives so that he could beg from those who came to worship and who thought that they would gain some merit from their giving. They wanted to be seen, they wanted to be observed to be actually giving. But this man was put there so that he could beg from people like that, who thought that they would gain some merit from their giving. They wanted all of the kudos for what they were doing. I'm interested in where the beggar was actually placed here. His pitch was at the temple gate, which is called Beautiful. It was also called the Nicanor Gate, which was the main eastern terrace to the temple precincts. The gate was called Beautiful and was probably made out of Corinthian brass. It was about 75 feet high and it had huge double doors, so it was quite a monument. It was the sort of place that would attract plenty of people. About three weeks ago, Stephen, my eldest son, and I went to the Tower of London, which is a monument in itself. We had a great time. We actually went down into the dungeon. We saw the crown jewels. We saw that place where they used to chop people's heads off and all that sort of stuff. And it was quite a place and there were hundreds of people there queuing up. We had to stand in a great long queue to get in to see the crown jewels and all of these things. This was the gate called Beautiful, made of Corinthian brass, huge double doors, a monument in itself, a place that would be ideal for somebody who needed to beg to be placed there, and that's why they put the beggar. Luke says in Acts 4, verse 22, that the man was over 40 years old. He was so severely handicapped that he had to be carried and put there every day to beg. And Peter and John were about to enter the temple. The crippled man asks them for money. That was his whole purpose of being there, to receive cash so that he could put food on the table. Very interesting about some of these people that received miracles that we read about in the Bible, like the man who was born blind that we read about in John 9. We don't always know their names. We don't know very much about them. We're not sure about this crippled man, whether he'd ever been married. We don't even know what his name is. What we do know was that he'd been crippled from birth and there he was in prime position where he would be in touch with very many people asking to receive 
money and cash. That was his living. That's what he did. That was how he gained, presumably, his livelihood. And the apostles stopped and looked straight at him. They gave him their attention. It was a look of discernment. And then Peter gives him two commands. Peter was attracted by him. Peter could see that he was there. He gives him two commands. Look at us, he said. Just look at us. Give us your attention. Fix your gaze upon us. Look at us. That was the first command. The apostles needed him to look straight at them, this look of discernment. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. I don't know if he ever knew them at all, but he expected to receive something from them. But Peter tells him this. He says, I've got something better to give you than money. Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. What a wonderful thing this is. Peter didn't then stand back and watch the man struggle to his feet or anything like that, not at all. He didn't just stand away from him. He leaned forward and taking him by the right hand, he helps him up. The hand was Peter's, but the power in this wonderful miracle was Christ's. But by taking the man by the hand, it was something that Peter had seen Jesus do. He was actually doing exactly what Jesus did. When Jesus met with the daughter of Jairus, the, the ruler, remember the story well, you can read about it in three of the Gospels, particularly in Mark 5 and verse 22 when Jesus went into the home of Jairus and his daughter lay there on a bed. And at the, on that occasion, Jesus takes with him Peter and James and John and no one else. So Peter and John had seen the way in which Jesus dealt with this little girl. He takes her by the right hand and tells her to come out and to rise and says she's only sleeping. The little girl rose from the dead and so the way in which Peter had seen Jesus do this was to hold out his hand and he holds out his hand to the crippled man it wasn't a gesture of unbelief but of love then instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong so strong and agile that he jumped to his feet and began to walk which he had never done before he now accompanied the apostles into the temple courts, walking and leaping and praising God. What a wonderful, tremendous blessing for this man, just like the man who was born blind, who was unable to see. And in that, on that occasion, Jesus uses a totally different method, spitting on the ground, making clay of the spittle, anointing the man's eyes, and then telling him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. We can't explain these things. But God knows what he's about. And he knows the hearts of people. He knows about people's lives. 
He knows what makes us tick. And if there's a theme to what I've been talking about this morning, you could say it's the day that changed my life. That was true of me. I wasn't a Christian. Didn't really believe in anything much at all until one day somebody told me about the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the day of Winston Churchill's funeral. I'd actually been to his funeral. I was among the crowds outside St. Paul's Cathedral on that cold Saturday morning, 30th of January, 1965. I was actually there. And I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember what happened, but they nearly dropped the coffin, you know. The bearers put Winston on their shoulders and started to walk up the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral. And they stumbled and went back a couple of steps. And you could hear the crowd gasp because it looked for all the world as though they were going to drop him on the floor. But they managed to regain their composure. And all was well. In the afternoon, I went to see Chelsea play West Ham at Upton Park. That's typical of me. I can even tell you the results as well. West Ham, uh, Chelsea won 1-0. It was a bitterly cold afternoon. In the evening, I'd been invited to a meeting. Didn't know what I was going to, but a fellow that I'd been introduced to said, be at Turnham Green Tube Station, 7.30 on Saturday night. So I went right the way across London, got to Turnham Green Tube Station, and there was George waiting for me in his car. Took me to a meeting. It was in a minister's house, and the place was jam-packed full of young people. I didn't really know what I was going to, and I felt like a fish out of water because all the other people seemed to be nice and happy and cheerful and bright, and there was me. And the preacher talked about trusting in the Lord with all your heart and leaning not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. And I felt as though the preacher was talking directly to me. And afterwards he took me into a side room and talked to me about the fact that Jesus is a saviour who is available to us every moment of every day. And it amazes me how the Lord chooses to use people. On this occasion, he uses Peter and John. But the power comes from Christ himself. It was Christ who performed this wonderful miracle, just as he had performed such a wonderful miracle in the lives of Peter and John, especially Peter. You know, when I get to heaven, I want to meet Peter. I'd love to have a chat with him. This was the Peter who denied that he'd ever been with Christ. This was the Peter the fisherman. And I'm always, I love it, that, that caption that you see when, when Peter, when Jesus meets with Peter. And they've been fishing all night. And they're cleaning their nets. Because Peter and John run a fishing business. And they'd had a bad night. They'd caught nothing. And Jesus says, go out and fish again. I don't think Peter was best pleased with that. I mean, how dare Jesus interfere? How dare he come and say to Peter, go ahead, John, go out and have another go. And I think Peter was cross and annoyed. But in the end he says, because you say so, I'll do it. The day that changed my life. In the early 90s, I stopped working for the National Health Service. I took very early retirement, very, very early retirement, and became a chaplain 
at Norwich Prison. And I'll never forget the first chaplaincy, well, it was a prison fellowship conference that I went on at Cliff College up in Derbyshire. I'll never forget the experience there because I didn't really know what I was going to. I'd heard of prison fellowship, but I didn't really know what it was all about. I didn't know what the programme was. I didn't know what the accommodation was going to be like. I knew nothing about it whatsoever. When I got up there, it was a beautiful summer's evening, and I decided to go for a walk around the grounds uh, in the evening before the evening meal. And um, as I was walking, I saw this guy sitting on a bench. So I went and sat alongside him, and we opened up a conversation. We must have spoken to each other for well over half an hour, just chatting generally about all sorts of things, about our journey. What I didn't realize at the time was that this guy was a man called Chris Lambriano, and he was actually the guest speaker for the evening. But he didn't tell me that as we were talking. Now, Chris Lambriano had been a member of the notorious Cray Gang, those twins who terrorized the East End of London and other parts as well during the 50s and 60s. And Chris Lambriano was there chatting to me on this bench. He was at the time, well, he had been uh, previously among the top 10 uh, most dangerous criminals within the prison system. And there he is talking to me on a bench at Cliff College, and he was the evening speaker. He spoke about his testimony, about the way in which Christ had come into his life and turned his life around from the, from the guy that he had been into the guy that he now was. And he talked about the day that changed my life. There was a day in which his life had taken a complete and utter change because of the love and the grace and the saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, of course, he had to repent. He had to repent wholesale. And then after this particular meeting, a few months later, there were a series of programs on BBC television which were called The Day That Changed My Life. And featured on it was Chris Lambriano talking about his Christian testimony. These were not necessarily uh, Christian programs. They were about people's experiences. But Chris Lambriano talked in the program, The Day That Changed My Life, about his love of the Saviour, about the way in which his life had been changed from the criminal activity that he had been so involved in for so many years. The day that changed his life. And so here we've got this man walking, jumping, and praising God. We've got a crowd that gathered very quickly. They saw him walking and praising God, and this is actually the fourth time that Luke describes the man as walking, as if to emphasize the fact that his poor crippled legs were now for the first time fully operational. He could walk, the blind man could see. And Jesus is at work. And the crowd recognized him as the man who had been a familiar sight for so many years since he used to sit and beg at the temple gate called Beautiful and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And this led into the sermon that Peter preached to the crowd. Peter had preached his first sermon at Pentecost, and now this was his second one. 
And while the blind beggar held on to Peter and John cured, but still clinging to them, all the people were astonished and came running to them. And they assembled in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. It was a double row of marbled columns and roofed with cedar, which ran all the way along the eastern wall of the outer court. And it was a place sometimes where Jesus preached and walked himself and taught in it as well. So Jesus was familiar with it. And Peter seizes the opportunity to preach. Just as the Pentecost event had been the text for his first sermon, so the cripple's healing became the text for his second sermon. Both were mighty acts of the exalted Christ. And while I was preparing this during the week, a word came into my mind that I couldn't get rid of, and that word was ambassador. It sounds a grand word. It means representative or diplomat. I'm not quite sure if you could apply the word diplomat to Peter, because he was so outspoken. But those of these were acts of the mighty exalted Christ. Both were signs which proclaimed him Lord and Saviour, and both of these things aroused the crowd's amazement. And Peter begins his sermon in verse 12 by ascribing all the credit to Jesus. Why do you stare at us? Why do you look at us as if by our own power of godliness we had man, made the man walk? It was Jesus who did it. He gave the glory to, to, to Christ. And Peter's outspoken when he preaches his discernment. He describes the fourfold dishonour which the inhabitants of Jerusalem had shown him. He says to them, You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate. Peter himself had disowned or denied Jesus before a servant girl and others. But then there was the day of Pentecost. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you, demanding the condemnation of the innocent and the acquittal of the guilty. You killed the author of life. But God wonderfully reversed the fourfold rejection of Jesus by raising him from the dead. Eventually, if we were to read on, in Acts 4, we would read that Peter and John were arrested, that they were jailed, that they were tried, that they were forbidden to preach. Eventually, they were warned and released. And many who heard the message that Peter preached and the number of men grew to about 5,000. What wonderful evangelism, all to do with the grace of God and the way in which God chooses to work through individuals. And Luke describes the following in Acts 2, 1 to 13, the coming of the Spirit. Acts 3, 1 to 10, as we've been thinking about this morning, the healing of a cripple. And the story is told in a matter-of-fact way. Luke describes a speech by Peter which takes the miraculous event as its text and interprets it in such a way as to glorify Christ whom the, hear <coughs> whom the hearers had killed but God had raised him as the apostles had witnessed. And how does that leave us? How do we feel as individuals about these things this morning? Chris Cleary spoke about the difference 
between knowing about God and knowing him. Now, I know about many people. We know about the Prime Minister. We know about the politicians. We know about the sport. We know about all sorts of people. But if we haven't met them, then we don't really know them. The difference between knowing about people. And you meet in life many people who know about God. Many people who know about the Lord Jesus Christ without actually knowing him. We worship this morning a God who is available. A God who knows each of you better than you know yourselves. We can know him because he is available to each and every one of us. For me, it's always a joy to share something of the love of the Saviour with individuals. And as I close, I want to read you this poem. Um, this was written by a prisoner. It's just a short one. It says this. Before the world began, you were on his mind. And every tear you cry is precious in his eyes. Because of his great love, he gave his only son. Everything was done so that you would come. Come to the Father, though your gift is small. Broken hearts, broken lives, he will take them all. The power of his word, the power of his blood. Everything was done so that you would come. Nothing you can do could make him love you more. And nothing that you've done could make him close the door. Because of his great love, he gave his only son. Everything was done so that you would come. Come to the Father, though your gift is small. Broken hearts, broken lives, he will take them all. The power of his word and the power of his blood. Everything was done so that you would come. I'm going to ask the musicians if they'll come back, please, because we're going to sing our closing hymn, which is a favourite of mine, Amazing Grace. I think it's a, it's a favourite of everybody's. And in the prison, I often used to ask them, well, I didn't need to ask them, if they wanted to sing a favourite hymn, and the hands used to shoot up, can we have Amazing Grace? And we sang it nearly every week. But I just want to read you a little bit about this, because when our boys were small and we were living in Northampton, we often used to travel to Bedford, where Jill's parents lived. And halfway between Bedford and Northampton is a little uh, town called Olney. It's famous for two things. On Shrove Tuesday, they always have a pancake race through the town. Uh, it's also the place where John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, was the vicar. He was the vicar of Olney for quite a while. And so I used to know Olney very well. And I came across this the other day, which says this. "'Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. When John Newton penned this promise, he did so out of personal experience. Remember that uh, John Newton had been a slave trader, a cruel, a brutal, and an evil man. And so he wrote this out of personal experience. 
His greatest test came the day he buried his wife Mary. He had loved her dearly and prayed his death would precede hers, but his prayer was not answered. Yet God's grace proved sufficient. On the day she died, Newton found strength to preach a Sunday sermon. The next day he visited church members and later he officiated at his wife's funeral. He grieved, but in his grief found God's provision. Let's sing this wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace. Sweet. 
Thank you so much, Terry, for, for sharing that. Um, perhaps times that we can think of, the day that changed our lives. Or maybe that's something to happen yet in terms of coming to know Jesus. And I'm sure if uh, you want to chat with anybody about that this morning, I'm sure Terry would be more than willing to, and uh, myself and other leaders uh, will be more than willing to chat and pray with you if you've been challenged by something this morning. Thank you so much for coming today. Thank you to those at home who've been watching on the stream as well. And just a couple of notices before we close today. Some of you will know that um, as part of the Fish Initiative for the Food Bank, we've been delivering food parcels in the household area, um, taking them out. We've, we're, we're a driver short for tomorrow. So if you've got an hour to spare at about half past 10 tomorrow morning, come and have a word with me and we can give you some food parcels to deliver for about uh, seven or eight families. Um, Encounter is on Wednesday evening, the 1st of September, and that's going to be here for the first time since lockdown. We're going to be meeting here, so please come and join us for Encounter on Wednesday evening. And don't forget Rachel and Elliot's wedding on Saturday at 2.30 as well. Let's pray as we close together. Father, thank you for your great love. Thank you that you are a God who changes things. And uh, Lord, I pray that this week you will be present in all our lives, that we will see evidence of your grace and goodness in the name of Jesus. Amen.